You're listening to the St. Mark's Podcast for October 22nd, 2023, the 21st Sunday after Pentecost. Today's sermon was given by the very Reverend Dr. Andrew McGowan. It's based on Matthew chapter 22, verses 15 through 22. Good morning. It's great to be with you and thank you for the invitation to spend some time uh, with St. Mark's, including with the, the men who are on retreat on Friday and Saturday. It's, uh, it's always a pleasure to be with you. Uh, we were reading uh, as we uh, sat and prayed and thought together, the men, about uh, Matthew's Gospel. And of course we've been reading Matthew's Gospel all through the Sundays of this liturgical year. And we're now in the last few weeks. There's a sense of rising tension and drama in the stories uh, about Jesus in his last visit to Jerusalem. This particular gospel, of course, contains uh, a phrase that has been extracted and then used in a rather general kind of way throughout history to help people think about how our religious uh, allegiance and our civil duties relate. And you know this phrase probably not in the version that we heard from our contemporary translation, but in the old King James Version, render unto Caesar. This idea that uh, of rendering to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's is, of course, Jesus' punchline in this uh, saying. That particular idea has been taken up and used by Christians of different stripes in ways that I think uh, do not necessarily do justice to the way this gospel is really meant to work. Let me explore them with you for a minute. Medieval Catholic interpretation thought that render to Caesar what is Caesar's and render to God what is God's meant that there were these distinct realms of authority and influence. That just as the kingdoms of this world had their rulers, their, their armies, their properties, their taxes and their, um, their rights, so too the church was another kind of kingdom which had all the same things. So that the medieval papacy, for instance, was a property owner, raised its own armies, held its own territories. And so the idea of Caesar and God was then transplanted sort of literally onto the map of medieval Europe to create these zones and realms. When the Protestant Reformation came along, the idea of the two realms was retained, but the map was changed, so to speak. In the kind of standard Protestant interpretation of render unto Caesar, the civil state was given great authority and expected uh, kind of allegiance and subservience from Christian believers, but there was an insistence that rendering to God continued as a, a specific sphere of activity, but primarily a private and internal one. So that the idea was that the state would maintain a kind of civil order where freedom of religion could be exercised as something that was primarily private. So it was no longer about having armies and states and wealth for God, it was about having a place where the soul could actually take part in its quest for purpose and meaning. I suspect that our 21st century version of this notion of distinct realms of activity of God and Caesar has its form almost of a kind of a consumerist understanding about how faith or the God part is supposed to work. We talk a lot, don't we, about spirituality in the 21st century. And those of us who come to a place like this are probably, and quite rightly, concerned to pursue the question of spirituality. But it's always tempting, I think, the way the 21st century works, for us to think that we can create a kind of balanced scorecard for the ways our lives are supposed to work, and spirituality is one column. 
So I'll come to church and I'll work on my spirituality, or I'll come, uh, tongue in cheek, you guys, I'll come to a men's retreat and I'll work on my spirituality, and then I'll go home and I'll see what I have to do to adjust my portfolio, and then I'll go to the gym, and then we'll spend some family time. Uh, right, you, you know what I mean, don't you? There's this temptation or perhaps even pressure on us to think about the God part as being sure, it's there, but it's not only completely private, it's actually completely insulated from the rest. So Caesar, in effect, Caesar has been spun out into a variety of other forces, you know, render to the market, render to the government, render to culture, render to whatever else. Yes, you've probably gathered by now that I'm going to suggest there's a problem with all this thinking about rendering as a kind of separation of forces or powers or spheres of influence. And I think that Jesus has something very different to say about that question in this gospel. The question that's put to him, and bear in mind, you heard this in the gospel very clearly, the question is put to him in a disingenuous and hypocritical kind of way. The question that's put to him is about the taxation that is rendered to the emperor, the Roman emperor, our modern translations say the emperor, the original text just says Caesar. Caesar is this kind of embodiment of the Roman power, not Julius Caesar anymore, but his sort of political descendants of a century later who represent the authority of the Romans in Judea. Judea is a place under occupation. Judea is under colonial and imperial domination. Judea has unwelcome Roman armies stalking the streets and foreign landowners who have come and displaced peasants, fisher, pe fisher people, farmers and all kinds of others from their ancestral homes pushed them to the sidelines of life and has claimed to be the true authority. True authority not only in political terms but sometimes in religious ones as well. But stick with politics just for a minute to get an idea of what Caesar means to someone in first century Judea. Imagine that you're a Ukrainian being asked about the Russians. Imagine that someone is asking you, so um, what do you think about Putin? What kind of respect, authority and subservience, what kind of monetary or other kinds of forms of allegiance and performance do we have to undertake uh, for Mr. Putin? And of course, you know, the hidden microphone's on, so to speak, at this point. This is all about getting a soundbite out of Jesus that is going to, you know, catch him out and prove him to be someone who is, who is dangerous. This gospel is set in a time when the danger that is surrounding Jesus is absolutely acute. It's actually become critical. You don't hear this in the gospel today, but this story has taken place just the day after Jesus had arrived in Jerusalem in triumph, riding on a donkey, being acclaimed as King of the Jews, as the Son of David riding into Jerusalem in triumph and then going to the heart of the temple, the temple which was the symbol both of religious and political power for Judea, and has overturned the tables of the money changers and has placed himself in the temple as its authority and has welcomed people to teach them and to heal the sick, to act as the true Lord of Jerusalem and of Judea. He has been debating initially with the local authorities, the chief priests and the scribes and the others who are disturbed by his presumption in taking their places as if he is the true religious authority of Israel. But then there are the Romans. So this question about taxation and the emperor is not asked of Jesus 
as a means to give us an enduring teaching about the relationship between religious and civil authority. It's a question which is asked of Jesus to try and winkle out the true character of his own kingship and the claim that he is making by turning up and causing this tumult in Jerusalem. And because we know the end of the story, let's not forget not just what happens two days before, but two days after, because these are the last days of Jesus in historical and human terms. He is indeed about to be treated as someone who has committed treason. He is about to be arrested by the Romans, tried before the Roman governor, and crucified with the label above his head, King of the Jews, with a measure of mockery and irony for those who disparaged him, but with a profound truth that reveals his identity for those of us who have faith in him. The question that was asked of Jesus was focused on taxation and on a coin. Is it lawful to pay taxes to the emperor or not? Let's bear in mind that Roman taxes imposed upon Judeans were not intended as part of a social contract, which meant that they would provide services in exchange for the ways in which people contributed. The taxation imposed by the emperor was the extraction of the surplus, and more than of the surplus, of these uh, colonized Judeans, the Romans extracting whatever they could from the colony. But the coin uh, which Jesus asks for as part of his answer to the question is also an interesting piece of evidence, and he makes use of it, of course. He asks them to bring a denarius, a small silver coin which was perhaps the most significant piece of currency in the Roman Empire. Now, the emperor at this time was Tiberius Caesar, and we have some of Tiberius' coins. We know what they looked like. On one side was his own image and likeness, just as Jesus alludes to in the story. On the other side, many of his denarii had pictures of his mother, Livia, depicted as a Roman goddess. And even Tiberius' own image had this hint of him being a divine figure, someone not only who should be worshipped, but not only who should be served and obeyed in a sort of civil, secular sense, but someone who was making claims to a religious authority, which from any Jewish point of view was, of course, deeply blasphemous. The Romans had encroached on Judea. They had annexed it even during Jesus' lifetime. This colonial rule was not a stable reality in which people could theorize dispassionately about how civil and religious claims existed together. This was a powder keg. A small explosion was about to go off with the execution of Jesus as someone who claimed to be king. Decades after this, but only decades, the powder keg would explode completely. Jerusalem would be destroyed in the course of a revolt. Jesus has been proclaiming throughout the narrative of the Gospel of Matthew a message which is that of a kingdom. If I gave you Matthew's Gospel to take away and say, you know, what is the content of the teaching of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew? There's no way you could come back with anything other than to say that Jesus proclaims the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is like this, is a parable. The kingdom of heaven is among you. The kingdom of heaven. Jesus is proclaiming the arrival of the kingdom. This is an obviously explicitly political metaphor. It's not as if Jesus has come to, to proclaim the fulfillment of your spiritual needs or some other kind of what we would imagine as a purely religious kind of mission or message. 
He has come to say that the true king of Israel is God and that he himself is the anointed king, the Messiah. You remember that a few chapters before this, Peter has confessed Jesus to be the Christ. Same word in Hebrew, the Messiah, meaning the anointed king, the son of the living God. It is not possible for the proclamation of Jesus not to have been perceived as a threat to the Romans. Now this doesn't mean, of course, that Jesus simply had intended to mount his own coup and to turn into yet another version of those endlessly disappointing and cynical versions of civil authority that we know too well even from our own time. Rather, Jesus' proclamation of the kingdom of God was the suggestion that God's will and rule had a kind of pervasive, immediate and radical character which could change the lives of all those who understood that the true king of Israel was not Tiberius, the Roman emperor, but was the God of Israel who from the beginning had been Israel's true ruler and Lord and shepherd. And this, again, of course, this is the man whose proclamation of that kingdom will end up with him crucified a couple of days later, which for those who disparaged him was the sign of his failure and for those of us who believe in him is the sign that he has subverted all our existing understandings of what true power is to bring us to a different understanding in which love and peace and the giving of self for others is the true nature of power and the true nature of authority. And while that isn't an obvious threat to the likes of the Romans who think in quite different terms, it is nevertheless an obvious threat to all other understandings of power in themselves because he asks us to rethink the most fundamental priorities we have and the most fundamental assumptions we have about how the world works. So, Jesus' response to the disingenuous question that is put to him about whether it is lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not is not the straightforward creation of a theory by which the spiritual world can somehow roll along independently of and untouched by the civil or material one. Not at all. This isn't the separation of church and state. Now, whatever you think of that principle is another question. We do have to find ways in which to coexist with people whose religious and other feelings and, and beliefs are different from our own, but that's not what this story is for. Jesus' claims cut across the authority of the Romans, as well as the claims of his compatriots in authority in the temple, the religious leaders. When he says, therefore, having been shown the coin, give Caesar what is Caesar's, I think we must understand this as a dismissive statement rather than a deferential one. Partly because it's the wrong question. I mean, if there is one thing that's characteristic about the way Jesus engages with people who ask him questions, it's to ask a question back. And that's usually a way of saying that the opening question was not really the right place to begin the conversation. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Bring me a coin. Whose likeness is this? It's not that Jesus was about to mount a coup. Jesus represents a completely different understanding of what wealth and power are, and his kingship will be revealed in those terms. Even his understanding of wealth, by the way, is worth noting as somewhat different. Notice that this itinerant, homeless Galilean 
has to ask somebody else to bring the coin so that they can actually use it as a prop in his conversation. He doesn't actually have a bag full of denarii hanging around in his pockets. He's someone who has opened his life in an extraordinary radical way to dependence upon God. It's really the second half of his response where the punchline lies. Render to Caesar what is Caesar's, sure. Render to God what is God's. The world of the Gospels is not one wherein entities called church and state wrangle over power. Neither of these existed in our terms at the time this story takes place. In fact, in any ancient conception, not simply that of Jesus, the idea that God could be defined in such a way as to prescribe the boundaries of divine authority such that a kind of human or political realm could be left untouched by God would absolutely be absurd. There's an element of humor in Jesus' response here. And that, of course, questions the ways in which we may be tempted to think that there is a sense in which, sure, I need to work on my spiritual life, I need to work on my spirituality, and I'm just going to keep that in this neat column over here while I work on a bunch of other stuff based on completely different values and principles. What do you think Jesus has to say about that? What do you think God has to say about that? What is God's? Give God's, give God what is God's. You know the answer. Everything is God's. Everything is God's. Jesus has been proclaiming the kingdom of God, the rule of God, the reign of God, the fact that God's love, God's care, God's concern penetrates the whole of our human existence. Jesus has been proclaiming this, and now they ask him, as it were, to suggest that the realm of God should somehow be constrained or defined. Dorothy Day, the founder of the Catholic Worker Movement, was asked about this, uh, this passage once, and she said to have answered, if we were to render to God all the things that are God's, there would be nothing left for Caesar. And this is true. So when Jesus puts these two ideas of what belongs to Caesar and what belongs to God side by side, the comparison is ironic. Jesus is not so much asking, in effect, to whom the coin belongs, he's asking to whom we belong. And that is the question that we must answer. God is the source of all authority. God is the ground of all reality. God is the maker of the metal in the coinage God is the maker of the stone in the temple. All authority and all reality stand or fall upon the reality of God, which underlines all things. The God whom Jesus proclaims does not invite us to allow one part of ourselves to follow him and to be in allegiance to him. The God of Jesus Christ makes the simple and loving demand for everything we are and everything we have to be his, because they already are. And when we understand that is the case, then our life can be lived in freedom and love, because we will understand that everything we have is a gift that has been given by God to begin with, and therefore everything we have can be offered back in freedom and loving service. Amen.
can find more sermons on our website, www.stmarksnewcanaan.org.